house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Jim Williams went and shot somebody. Can I pay? My client has nothing to say. If you'd like to spike that up, there's a bar right there. No, thank you. I'm still on duty, Mr. Williams. The place is fantastic. It's like Gone with the Wind on Mescaline. It's just a shooting, but give it time. It's going to be rather sticky for Jim. Listen to me. They walk imaginary pets here, Garland, and they're all heavily armed and drunk. New York is boring. I'll call you later. All rise. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will serve hot dogs to the king of England because we are what? Culinarily basic. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer at Decider.com, Joe Reed. I'm here with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hi, Chris. Hello, Joe. Chris, what is your pick for best popular movie this year so far? Um, go on to Box Office Mojo, find the 2018 <laughs> film that has grossed the least amount of money. That is my pick. I don't know what it is, but I will I will stump for whatever that movie is. She loves a protest vote. I love it. Um, yeah, if you're wondering, this is our first podcast we've recorded since the dread announcements by the Oscars that they have surrendered all pretense toward uh, exceptionalism and are now just rewarding whatever shit the American public coughs up at the box office every week. It's just like, oh my god. Well, and you know, by the time that this hits our listeners, maybe they could even reverse that. That's this is the like you curse seem to that be I'm of that into the universe. Yeah, you seem to be of that opinion that they're not gonna go through with it. I, I mean, it's so unanimously hated, right? I mean, the thing is, like, the larger talking point has been the best popular film category that everybody's talking about and people don't like it and there's a lot of talking points and like i i you know what honestly keep that category if it means you don't have to shove people off of the telecast i agree and i think that's the more damaging thing to the oscars being the oscars i think Mm -hmm. a a popular movie category marginalizes itself and and shows itself to be ridiculous and whatever because at Um, least at this point we don't know what this category is going to be they just made this vague announcement we don't know what the criteria is what the eligibility is going to be so at this point it that could all change but i think the thing that disrespects the artists and morphs the show into something that it's not is removing these craft categories i think um, on some level i think on some level it's sort of like uh, nicholson and a few good men you want me on that wall you need me on that wall like you you want the oscars to be a little stuffy you want the oscars to be long and a little boring and a little uh haughty like you that's what that's what we want the oscars for we the oscars are for that kind of traditionalism even if it's for us to like pick at with a little axe or whatever right um but like fully surrendering the idea that the oscars are for exceptional movies is even if it's a pretense you need that pretense like you need that i don't know well and the idea that the movies that are within that exceptionalism for the oscars yes it could do better you know, as far as expanding into other genres. And, sure. But all of that uh, I mean, amounts I think of to... a movie like Looper. Like, that's not necessarily... It, there's... That makes sense that the Academy could have recognized a genre movie like Looper that a lot of people love, that audiences responded to. Yeah. That did you ever watch... They just did won't you, be in their wheelhouse. Did you ever watch Weeds? Uh, I watched Weeds until it got terrible. Okay, so in the second season of Weeds, there's a scene where Elizabeth Perkins' character, she's, like, gone through chemo or whatever, and she and Mary Louise Parker are, like, at odds. And 
it's one of the like you'll see it like clipped a bunch where like Mary or Elizabeth Perkins just like flips out and grabs Mary Louise Parker by her hair and is like be my friend and like just starts <laughs> screaming in her face like be my friend and that's sometimes what it feels like with these attempts to get the academy to recognize popular movies and ultimately what you want is for the voters to just feel differently about things and to have different taste than they do and sometimes it's adding a whole bunch of other people to the academy so that they have more you know diverse taste which i think is good and i think sometimes it's just like hey academy voters like comedy better and you're just grabbing them by the hair and they're just like vote for comedies and you're like vote for popular movies and they're like no and you're just trying to force them into doing it and ultimately it's going to look begrudging which i think this is going to do as um, one of the internet's preempted or like preeminent uh tiffany haddish stands i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. um Anyway. Here's the bow that I will tie on all of this. Aside okay. from any of the things of the Academy clearly doesn't know what their core audience is, I think what the general audience would like to experience when watching the Oscars... Okay, so if they're going to shove these off of the air and they're going to award these categories during commercial breaks. What does that mean? That means that the audience at the Dolby, all of the people who are nominees and famous people will have to sit through the ceremony without their breaks to the bar, which is normally what they do during commercial breaks. Do you want an Oscar ceremony where no one's had any booze? I think not. Well, do you That's want an Oscar ceremony where someone someone's bladder explodes and you have some sort of kidney infection on your hands like is the other thing like let people go to the goddamn bathroom here is the bow i will put on this which is i wish abc had tried this when they had fewer than eight years left on their contract because here is the thing in eight years abc is going to need the academy awards way more than the academy awards are going to need abc yep network television is dying a lot faster than the oscars viewership is dying and Ultimately, there will be a time where we're watching the Oscars on the internet instead, which well, I truly hope that they have a live feed so that we can watch during the commercial break. I mean, this maybe is they the wouldn't thing. for ad dollars, but... If there was any anything close to a contract renegotiation happening, Netflix bidding on the Oscars would truly be, honestly, the best thing for the Oscars because Netflix could give a fuck. Netflix could be like, be on all day. What do we care? You're, you know, here you go. Here you right. go, Oscars. You have an all day affair. And ABC is doing this because they are sort of grabbing by their tips of their fingernails to the one thing. This is the other thing that I say. Nothing gets better ratings than the Oscars except for the Super Bowl. And people forget that. People talk about the Oscars mm-hmm. and their declining viewership as if they're fucking like. I don't know, two and a half men or something like that in their waning years when, like, nobody was watching it. It's, like, people... They're Mike and Molly. Yeah, thank you. Like, it's... This is not a low-rated, struggling little show. Do you know how many many more viewers the Oscars gets than the Golden Globes? And every year, people talk about how the Oscars should be more like the Golden Globes. Like, we get it. You would rather be, you know, off the clock by 11 because you're writing about this for a living. But you know what? Everybody else watches the Oscars. And... That's all there is to it. And, and and ABC needs this show way more than the show needs ABC. If the Oscars went off network, people would follow it. And I don't know. That's all I have to say about that. Anyway, we're talking about a movie this week, Chris. We're talking about a movie. We're talking about not, a movie. A, not within a stone's throw of 1997's best popular movie category had it existed. <laughs> that is true. What would have been 19... I guess 1997 would have been the double. Titanic would have won, would have won both, right? Yeah. Boy, what a boring, what a boring yeah. category that would have been that year. What would have one been the other nominees? One more Oscar for Titanic. Oh that my was, god, that was one of those years where the best picture nominees were pretty popular. Like as good as it gets in Goodwill Hunting, both made pretty good money. Um, L.A. Confidential, not as much, but that was your sort of like, you know, Critics that was it. the bone you threw. But like the Full Monty was another one of those like very popular movies that jumped across the pond. So like. Of course, 1997 is the year that everybody points towards when they talk about Oscar ratings because the the billions and billions that Titanic made coincided with the highest rated Oscars of all time. So it both made it and broke it at the same time, I feel like. 
Anyway, we still haven't said the title of the movie. Wow, we are getting into this without saying the title of this movie. We've said so many words already leading into the title of this movie because there's so many words in the title. We're trying to just, like, prep our palette. Yeah, we could Werner Brandis our way back into uh, putting this title together like Mary McDonnell and Sneakers. Hi, I watched Sneakers last night on Amazon. We are talking about... Yes. What's that? What'd you say? The the title built through um, auto spell the auto spell function on your phone, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, a 1997 movie directed by Clint Eastwood, based on the best selling book about murder amongst ridiculous people in Georgia. Um, this was a hugely anticipated movie back in its day, Chris, and not just because Clint Eastwood was an Oscar winning director, but like this book was no joke. Uh, quite a quite a sensation sensation. yeah and that's you know i always talk about you know i worked in the public library back in the day and like but i don't think i would have needed to to have heard about this book like this book was everywhere and i feel like a lot of people saw the title because it's a very grabby title but didn't quite know what it was about so i think at this point before we get too far into it chris do you want to pull out the 60-second plot? Do we need to set any tables before we do a 60-second plot? No, I will happily do our 60-second plot synopsis. Okay. Um, I, I will just say the title one time in order to save time. Yeah, let's do that. Just say it one time. All right, I'm going to put you <laughs> on the clock for... Hold on. Sorry, I'm adjusting my timer. One minute. 60-second plot description. Chris File begins now. Okay, so Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It stars John Cusack as John Kelso, magazine reporter assigned to cover the notorious Christmas celebrations of Savannah, Georgia local celebrity uh, Jim Williams, played by Kevin Spacey. Uh, Williams is noted for his money, his large collection of antiques, and his hush-hush taste for young men. Uh, When the night of Williams' Christmas party ends with a dead body in his mansion... Uh, Kelso's small story kind of turns into a huge one where he investigates um, the trial for that Williams is going through for murder of the dead young hustler in his house. Um, there's several murder trials that happen for him. Um, so it's like an ongoing thing. Um, meanwhile, Kelso is reporting this and like investigating the local celebrities for um, there's voodoo, um, lots of Southern traditions, and a local entertainer named the Lady Chablis. That hey. is 60 seconds. Well done. Um, that's a lot to put in there. There's a lot of local color in this in this movie. In this book, I think that was one of the main sort of selling points on the book was that not only did it cover this sensational murder trial at its center, but really it painted a portrait of Savannah as this kind of carnival of strange, out of time, out of place weirdos. And I think that's part of the reason why the book was so popular and part of the reason why the movie wasn't, because Eastwood in many ways, doesn't live up to... I think a lot of the reviews talked about how, like, what could live up to the splendor that happens inside your mind when you're reading this book, which is a lot of the problems of, you know, adapting books. But I think Eastwood in particular wasn't quite able to thread that needle and sort of interweave the sort of spectacularness of Savannah with this particular murder trial. I think it's it's Clint Eastwood, but it's also the screenwriter, John Lee Hancock. It's, like, two, like, temperatures of mm. people in what they do and what their kind of style and approach is that are really wrong for this material. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't read the book, but watching the movie, I was like, what even appeals to this <laughs> with Clint Eastwood other than it was, like, popular and from the South? Like, I, you... There... It's just kind of like, it feels like a murder on the Orient Express of Southern strangeness rather than actually being strange. Yeah, it's true. John Lee Hancock, by the way, directed The Blind Side, which got an Academy Award for Sandra Bullock. Um, Yeah, this... It was a a pretty big disappointment. I think if you read a a lot of the reviews, even the the positive ones, Ebert was an outlier. Ebert really liked it. Um... 
but I think a lot of the a lot of the reviews really had this kind of we were rooting for you aspect to it. Yeah. That did not I don't know. It's a movie that Oh wait, tells no, you constantly... Ebert didn't like this one. There was something else, sorry. We were oh, talking no, about okay. something else recently where Ebert was the outlier. Ebert did not like this one very much either. Um I don't know if there was a high profile uh standout on this one. I think I think it was just generally disappointing on all yeah. fronts. Yeah. But I think a lot of it was just sort of like that way that the way that you review a movie that you know is bad but you really want to will into finding good things about it because the story is interesting and all of the local color you mentioned is you can see why people would be fascinated by it in book form but the like stylistic approach of this movie is more to tell you constantly that things are strange rather than actually being strange yes for sure and I'm not sure of a director that would have made something interesting of this movie in 1997. There's a point in the first, like, half hour when Cusack's character first comes to Savannah where it feels like, okay, now for the next 20 minutes, we're going to do an overview of everything that's weird about the city. We're going to give you the guy who walks the invisible dog on the leash. We're going to give you the, the guy with the horse flies on strings. We're going to give you sort of, you know, the party with the eccentrics, the guy playing the piano, everything like that. Um, we're going to give you Dorothy Loudon. We're going to give you, like, everything. And then that's sort of... It's not like that stops, but it stops... It it doesn't integrate. I don't know. I feel yeah. like every time there's strangeness, it feels like we're taking a time out. We're going to take a time out and go to Irma P. Hall as the sort of cemetery voodoo priestess woman, but it doesn't really feel like it's taking place concurrently with everything else. I think I the agree. Lady Chablis is the only character who feels like she sort of weaves in and out of both the world of the strange in Savannah and then the world of the plot of the story of the movie. Yeah. And she's playing herself, too, which adds an extra layer of interest. I mean, okay, <laughs> you brought her up, so we're we'll just go there now. She's incredible. It's truly the best thing about the movie is the way that it kind of sets the table for the Lady Shibley and then just sort of lets her do her thing. Absolutely. Okay, so... <laughs> For listeners, I am, I'm just going to talk to you directly. Joe Reed is not here anymore. <laughs> Joe Reed knows me well enough, and when we were picking movies, he was very adamant about this movie and not saying why, and I am going to posit to you, listeners, that Joe Reed picked this movie specifically because he would knew he knew I would lose my mind at the Lady Chablis. I Joe, welcome back. I was surprised <laughs> that you hadn't sort of heard about this movie by reputation because I feel like even back then that well, was I, felt the w- I was like how do I not already know about it, the Lady Chablis that was the crazy. Lady Chablis we should give <laughs> some background on who she is yeah. the Lady Chablis is a local Savannah performer she's a trans drag performer who performed in the same club for years and was like a local treasure um, and she is kind of tangentially involved in this story and she kind of becomes a central character, at least for John Cusack's, um, like, reporter. Yeah, he's um, she's kind of his tether into uh, the world of this. She's the one who sort of levels with him a little bit about some stuff, even though she's as eccentric as everybody else. Lady Shibley, we should mention, uh, passed away in, like, not too long ago, like, 2016, but, like, up until then, was performing in Savannah... Like, people I knew who, like, went down to Savannah and, you know, stopped by and saw the Lady Shibley perform. Truly, truly an experience of anybody who sort of passed through Savannah. And I think survived this kind of era of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil making Savannah this kind of trendy, eccentric place. Mm Mm-hmm. But okay, let's she's talk. Just, well, she's wonderful, though. We'll talk more about her. We'll talk more about her because honestly, like, we'll talk more about her when we get into the question of like whether this is a good movie or a bad movie. Because I genuinely, I feel like there are, there are considerations. I will say that. So the book published in 1994, uh, author is John Barrent. 
It is. It remains the longest-running New York Times bestseller of all time at 200, 216 weeks, which is crazy to think that, like... Four a, years. Attention spans... I mean, think about what our attention spans are like these days. The fact that, like, it was a bestseller for that long. And... Almost, an, in an era when people read more books, let's just say it, too. Yeah, oh, so. of course. And I think you're right. I think Eastwood... So Eastwood, at this point, is coming off of... Unforgiven, and then he did A Perfect World in 1993, I want to say. Um, might have been 1994. And that one, I think, is one of those like handsomely well-regarded movies. It's about Kevin Costner plays an ex-con, and there's a you know young child, and he, they bond or something. I don't know. I If I saw that movie, I forget that I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that was, I think a lot of people sort of saw that as kind of a noble failure, if anything. And Well, there's also Bridges of Madison County in this era as well. So he already, I mean, that was a fairly reviled book, even though it was popular. And so he popular. And made yeah. a strong movie out of it. Yeah. To the point where reviews would mention, like, how did he polish this turd? Um, and a lot of it has to do with Meryl Streep. Yes. Um, but he's already coming off of an adaptation that was an incredibly popular book and turned out something very strong. Yeah, that's a very good and point. And a hit movie. Yeah, and it was, and again, got Meryl an Oscar nomination. I think, I think you're very right about that. I think that is the connective tissue that brings us to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And... It's funny, it's it's more funny to think about it now as what in the world was Clint Eastwood doing anywhere near a story this queer. Yep. And I don't necessarily think he, like, takes queerness off of the table, but it's presented observationally. He really, yeah. he really leans on the Cusack character. I think maybe more, from my understanding of the book, the author. I think also because you have a book, so there's always some sort of, you know, perspective you're going through anyway. But I think in the book, the narrate, the narration, and the narrator sort of fades into the background more. Whereas this, mm-hmm. they create this character of what is his name in this, Kelso, John Kelso, John Kelso, um to be a surrogate to the audience in a way that I think Barron's book was a little bit more observational. So yeah, you have this Cusack character who early on in the movie, he's at this party that uh, Jim Williams is throwing the Spacey character. And we'll talk about the Spacey angle to this in a second. Cause it's truly watching this movie in 2018 is another experience altogether. <laughs> um, so Cusack's sort of like gawking at all of the, the, eccentrics around and like I said like Dorothy Loudon's in one point and um, she's playing this woman who's got a gun on her right that's who she plays right yeah Um, and she's sort of like threatening to shoot people but like happily so celebrationally so Um, and then he's talking to Spacey in this sort of like you know ante room and in comes in Jude Law as the like street trade of all street trades like it's really kind of funny how he's almost dressed up like a greaser from a from a 1950s street gangs movie yeah like from stand by me or or like the outsiders i was thinking he has a confederate flag tattoo and it's like the most rudimentary confederate flag it feels like it's it feels like it's rubbed on it feels like he got it from like a bubblegum packet and he just sort of like rubbed it on he's it's interesting i think on one level because it's it's 1997 jude law so like picture that in your head for a second this is like the year he made gattaca this was two years before talented mr ripley like this is prime jude law and eastwood to his credit i would say make does the job of making jude law seem like somebody who you'd have to kill. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, cause he will fuck up your life. Like they do that. He does the job of that. Um, but it's the, the way he looks is really, really funny and really, 
I don't know, cartoonish. And so he comes in doing this ridiculous accent. Like, the accents in, accents in this movie are another thing altogether. And, like, Spacey pulls it off because Spacey is just ridiculous. And okay, I feel like... so I... Does he pull it off? Because I feel like whenever he plays these type of smarmy people, especially Southern people, I feel like he's a Southern version of Christopher Walken's SNL character, The Continental. I think like, that's right, but I think that's right for the story. It, sure, but it's still like Kevin Spacey is in like drag. Basically. Yeah, of course, but everybody he's in this in, movie like, should be in drag. Southern rich drag. But I think that's right for the story. I honestly do. Um, I think everybody in this movie is is draggy, or should be. If not, they're not. If they're not draggy, then they should be draggier. Um, and Jude Law is super draggy in this. He's sort of like if you think of like those Paris is Burning like like butch drag categories. Oh, yeah. Like category, this is man? this is street trade butch drag yeah. for sure. First time in drag. Yeah. Um, and he sort of comes in and he's like flashing his switchblade at Spacey and then he like flashes his switchblade at Cusack and Cusack is very like taken aback or whatever and then later that night we find out that uh, Jude Law's character Billy has been murdered Um, Spacey's character says it's in self-defense and that kicks off the whole thing as you mentioned in your sterling plot description Um, but I think that's sort of indicative of where the movie is going, where that, from that point, it's sort of like, there's a fork in the road and that fork in the road is John Kelso is going to stick around Savannah, mostly because he finds the, the whole scene there. So intoxicating and like, as again, a bug eyed observer, a lot of this is just, it becomes this idea of watching this community through glass. And I think that comes across in the movie too much, that glass. And I think, I mean, I think that goes back to the screenwriter and Eastwood because they're both these type of storytellers that they are in their best mode when they are doing something that is a straightforward narrative that hits its expected beats and that is not at all kind of what the story is. And they try to force it into that mold in a way that it's like, you can't even linger on what's interesting about it. And it becomes a a courtroom drama, which is, it's not its strongest suit. It is so the courtroom drama makes the whole thing seem so dull and so draggy, not not draggy as in the lady should leave, but draggy as in it drags. Oh, well, yes, but I was all, I was going to say, it's like the courtroom drama aspect of it is like a drag that the movie puts on. Oh, that's like, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because like, it's norm, like normal drag. a courtroom drama now, and it's, ugh, it's crazy. But, like, I mean, I've seen My Cousin Vinny. I know what Southern Fried courtroom comedy is supposed to be, and this isn't it. <laughs> Can we talk about Allison Eastwood for a second? Okay. So... For whatever reason, we have to have sort of a love interest given to John Kelso. It's so perfunctory that, like, even Cusack, at, in like in his performance, feels like he's like time to make the donuts. He really feels just yeah, like, like, oh, why we're, are we here? We've got to do this now. Okay. And it's also like Allison Eastwood, who is Clint Eastwood's daughter. Who, if you look at the IMDb trivia, it's like, no, she totally auditioned and everything. Okay, like, it just happened that way. It's, okay, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, she just has no discernible traits whatsoever. She's just a blank. I think I, I was saying before we started this, because I made a whole bunch of notes and now I couldn't find them because it was days ago. And I think one of my notes was just like, I think I called her Little Miss Peasant Top. Because <gasps> I was like, I couldn't remember her character's name because her character is so unmemorable. But she does wear a lot of peasant tops, like seen in and seen out. I don't even remember what her job is. She works at some sort of shop. Like, and she's introduced in a way that makes you think that she might be a sex worker, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, but like, it's oh, okay. totally but not that. Yeah, It's not that. I mean, like. If everything in this movie is about distinguishing how strange it is, she is strange through boringness. Like, she's so boring that it's, like, weird you're spending time with her. And then on the other side of that spectrum is Irma P. Hall plays this character Minerva, who is this, like, voodoo sort of... 
she's like the all three witches from Macbeth, like swirled into one. Um, stereotype. What's that? The stereotype. Yes. Well, that's the thing. She's just this walking stereotype. But also, this movie would work if everybody was more of a stereotype. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the whole point. The whole point of this movie is that this is, like, this carnival of the strange. And so I think, like, you want to almost say points for effort for the Minerva character, except she is, again, integrated to the rest of the movie so poorly that it really feels like every time we go to her, it feels like a short film that, like, comes from somewhere else entirely. Yeah. Uh, it's very frustrating because I do feel like there's a, and I mean, that's probably the, I'm noticing the book inside of it, but because I feel like there is a movie in here, a good movie in here waiting to get out. Um, And sadly, I think that movie has a lot less to do with John Cusack. Oh, for sure. And also I love, but I was like, this is just too much of, him and he does nothing and has nothing to do. So can we talk and about like, Clint? Or can we talk about Cusack in the '90s for a second? Because I feel like he's a very interesting figure with when we talk about the Oscars. Because he was he kept being the sort of boring straight white guy in interesting movies that like everybody else around him got awards attention, mm-hmm. but him. Where like he's in Bullets Over Broadway. Which, like, literally everybody else in that cast got an Oscar Got nomination. nominated. But him, and he's the lead. And then he's in Being John Malkovich, which I think he's actually very good playing a despicable person in yeah. Being John Malkovich and playing a despicable person interestingly. And yet, like, Keener a gets the Oscar the, nomination. Like, of that movie it relies on him, you know, and, like... Agreed. Yeah, I think a lot of... And I think a lot of the moral thorniness of that movie relies on his performance and i think he sells it very well i think in the long line of charlie kaufman avatars in movies i think he holds up very well but like keener gets the oscar nomination there malkovich and cameron diaz both got a lot of precursor attention and cusack got like jack shit Um, absolutely nothing high fidelity is so well regarded nothing like it's all like He's in these, just the string of, like, success after success after success, and none of it is on him. I think later on, and I mean, whatever, like, this is pure rumor, so, like, uh, lend no credence to this, but, like, I do keep hearing this, like, oh, yeah, nobody in Hollywood likes John Cusack, he's an asshole. So, I would believe it, if only, like, because of the way that, like, he has been consistently, or he was consistently overlooked in projects that, like, clearly people were loving for awards. Right. It it is interesting because, like, being the passive viewer who doesn't know if he's an asshole or not, because you do got to be liked by people who are nominating you for things. Yeah, is that well? That was always the this story. This is certainly when... an era where it felt like it. He, he would. He's one of those people that we take for granted. Oh yes, he will eventually be an Oscar nominated actor. This is actually Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is the same year as probably my favorite performance of his. Are you part of the gross point blank cult? I'm not part of the cult, but I get it. I I would need to see it again. I haven't seen it since the late 90s. I haven't seen it in a hot minute, but I just remember being very taken with him in that movie specifically. It's a good movie. It's a real good movie. Minnie Driver's really good in that movie. Her. As she um, is in most things. So yeah, but I think I think you're right that I think the better version of this movie has a lot less John Cusack, but it also has a lot more Kevin Spacey, which is weird to think of when you talk about 2018 because this is it's so the Jim Williams character, the story of it is that his essential sort of conundrum in this movie is just being accused of this murder is going to put the spotlight on him as a gay man in a way that like because the whole idea of savannah is everybody's sort of putting on this performance and everybody's sort of enjoying each other's eccentricities and it's fine and it's wonderful and and jim is jim and and everybody sort of you know knows who he is and knows what he is but like with the murder trial now all of a sudden this becomes very real in a way that everybody has to take seriously and then all of a sudden everybody's sort of like southern conservatism comes back into play and all of a sudden now he is at risk of becoming the victim of this kind of retrograde homophobia 
in Savannah that wouldn't have existed when everybody was just sort of having a good time. And the parallels to Spacey's story in 2018, where, you know, huge open secret, everybody knows and assumes that Spacey is gay, nobody says it, and then all of a sudden it becomes text via these horrible allegations against him. It Which was, we've talked about in our Pay It Forward episode. Yeah. Um, talking about the Oscars the, is talking about Kevin Spacey, so we, we have to do it. Um, right, right. But, th- I mean, like, this... First of all, I will say I did not know this part of the storyline going into the movie. Yeah. So watching the movie it, now in a contemporary context is spooky and honestly a little shocking because of the obvious mirror that you're talking about, but also like for a performer that was so notoriously cagey about his sexuality to see, even as there were like rumors of like Spacey likes the young boys, like, Oh yeah. To see it like fictionalized. To see that he had done it even at that time. Like that he had basically played a character that is so close to what we now have confirmed about Spacey, like yeah. when he was never acknowledging it before. But I think that was his, that's what made his vibe so sort of infuriating for so many years. And then ultimately so doubly infuriating when he tried to, you know, use coming out as a deflection tactic. Absolutely. Um, because he was, he was in a movie like this uh, where he essentially, sort of looked back at the audience and was like, well, you, you like, you know, I know, we know. Um, he did that at the goddamn Tony Awards. Like, but that's like still even late in the game yes, you're of right. him acknowledging it. That felt like the closest to an acknowledgement ever. Yeah. Uh, or at least for probably people who aren't familiar like with this movie, like I wasn't. Yeah. It's almost like Queen Latifah and Set It Off and like playing these sort yes. of like this string of lesbian characters where it's just like you're already playing the characters. Like what's the what's the hold up? Or like uh that kid from Heroes who uh whose name escapes me, who then went on to be in the Sarah Connor Chronicles where there was that whole thing where he got taken off of Heroes because um his he didn't want to play a gay character and then all of a sudden he's in like greg Araki movies why can't i remember this kid's name i never watched heroes so i'll think of it in a second um but it's sort of it's one of those things where it's just sort of like you're already thomas decker thomas decker who i think is actually a really interesting little uh young actor um but you're already in these these roles that seem to be like pulling the curtain back anyway. So what is the holdup? And I think that was the thing with Spacey for years. It, yeah, I mean, it feels like that story has quieted down because he has thankfully gone away. But like, yeah, it just makes it's a it's an added layer of gross. Yeah, um, absolutely that is just really spooky to watch. It is. Although, I mean, did you see The Billionaire Boys Club? I can't imagine you would have gone out of your way to see that movie. No, I didn't th- Was that released or not? It's on VOD now, so yes. Quietly. Very quietly. Oh, yeah, super quietly. I think it's going into theaters like next week as like a cursory whatever. I don't know, you know, what like a contractual obligation it's gotta be. of something. It's kind. gotta be, because it's been on VOD for a few weeks now. Um yeah, nobody wanted to make any noise about that movie. And I mean it's not good enough to warrant it or anything like that, but he's playing another character in that where it's like, oh, like oily, quasi gay, um sort of predatory with these young sort of handsome men it's just like man like you were not afraid at all of people connecting any kinds of dots about you were you like it's and a lot of people read baby driver similarly oh yeah absolutely one well, the fact that it's ansel algorton both of them um yeah yes there's a michael jackson thing there too where it's like and i know that's a whole can of worms that like nobody ever really likes to delve into also but like where Michael Jackson, you were just sort of like, every once in a while you were just like, you know that like people say these things and there are these accusations. You could maybe steer away from that skid for a while, but like, no, just 
Absolutely not. So where do you think... Okay, so beyond the Spacey character, what are the things you like about this movie? <laughs> Aforementioned the Lady Chablis. Okay, well, let's, um, like, let's go into it more because we really didn't talk about her in the movie. After the murder, the morning after the murder, Spacey's character, uh, Cusack's character starts sort of digging into the community and he ends up at the doorstep of Lady Chablis. And I think it's sort of like therein it begins, right? Talk like, yeah. talk a little bit about her, her storyline throughout the movie. Her storyline throughout the movie, they kind of almost flirt with like this love story for her and John Kelso. Like she might, be into him a little. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, but she was connected to Jude Law's character because he was also a drug dealer. Um, and she essentially becomes a witness to the trial um, because of her connection to whatever Jude Law's character name is. Yeah. Um, so she's, <clears throat> of all the supporting characters that are like supposed to be like that are introduced to us as like, here's another, here's like another like person that's not what you would expect to see in this story. Yeah. She becomes the most integral in a way because she's actually brought into the court proceedings. Um, I think on a performance level, aside from how she is without question, the best performance in the movie. Yep. It's, it makes the movie fascinating because she is playing herself. Like yes. everything about it feels so distant from the fact that this is a true story we're watching because like all the things we've mentioned that are like, it's draggy. It's like boring. Yes. And it, there's like just this weird, almost meta level to it where, I mean, obviously it's from a nonfiction book, but when do we see people playing themselves? Well, and there's one point and in, the in movie... ways that are interesting. Yeah, like there... not like. By the way, she's playing herself. See, like you know, it's. <laughs> yeah. It, it... There's and one point in the movie a... where they go to one of her drag shows that is fully feels like they ju- that were actually a fly on the wall. They just on one of her showed up shows. one night, and and it, and they go through an entire sort of like she does a whole bunch of like crowd work, and it feels very natural and it feels very much like what you would see if you went down to savannah and saw one of her shows and that is i mean obviously it's it's easy to say but like i wanted the entire movie to just be that i just wanted to watch that for the rest of the evening it was so fun there's also this very it felt very 90s to me the first scene with her and kelso where she's like making these sort of like coy references to like her her pills or whatever her uh Mm -hmm. her hormone treatments and Kelso's like, wait, what are you talking about? And she's just like, oh, never mind. Um, Like, don't concern yourself with that. And making these sort of, like, very kind of, like, oblique references to her identity. And he's not picking them up, and we're supposed to believe that he is fully ignorant of the fact that he is speaking to a drag performer, trans woman, like, any kind of gender nonconformity here. Um, yeah. And that he's supposed to be like surprised, and I get I get that he's supposed to be the outsider who is unaware of Savannah's ways, but like he's from New York. Like these these movies sometimes maybe oversell the idea that like nobody knows anything about anything, and we're about also the world. Yeah, we're also very surprised. Um, and also he's a writer. Like he's supposed to have this kind of natural curiosity and. I don't know. He has a line. Kelso has one good line. I think it's in the trailer, too, um, where he describes Savannah as, um, shit, what is it? Um, Gone with the wind on mescaline? (laughs) What is the mescaline line? Something Something like that. that. Um, But, like, yeah, gone with the wind on mescaline, I'm pretty sure is what it is. It's not Streetcar Named Desire. That would have been too much of a mouthful. Anyway, um... That's the movie I want to see. I want to see Gone with the Wind on Mescaline. And it's not... I don't get it enough in the movie. Well, and she's so great that you almost want to see the entire narrative from her perspective. Yeah. Um, Because she's also very straight shooting, very um, confident, and very forward with 
everyone, and she feels like the only... F- and it's not just because she's playing herself, but she feels like the only fully formed... Yeah. Anything. Not even just character, but, like, fully formed idea, like... Yeah. Set piece, like... Everything about the movie feels so tepid. Even to the point where, like, we're we're getting bogged down in this trial, and she shows up at the trial, and even that, like, livens up that storyline. Yeah, like, she shows up, and it's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Um, what does she say to incredible. the one woman in the... She's, like, giving her, her statement or whatever, and then she just looks at the one woman in the jury, and she goes, like, and just between you and me, blue is not your color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's she's so quotable in the movie. Uh, two tears, two in the, tears in a bucket, motherfucker. Like that's so. God, if only that could have been her Oscar clip. Okay, this is the other okay. thing. We were not. I think we were not ready for Lady Shibley as an Oscar nominee back then. Even if the movie was well received, but like, would that it were so that we could have been so daring as to put Lady Shibley in that. Oscar category for supporting actress. Remind us who was nominated that year, and then who do you bump out to obviously include Lady Shibley, which we would want. I to already know who I would bump out. Sorry for people who are going to be mad about this. Okay, so you have the winner, Kim Basinger. Yes. Joan Cusack, In and Out. Yes. The rare comedy. The rare comedy nominee. We always talk about that with Joan Cusack. Um, yes, always an example for that. Whenever we're trying to get Tiffany Haddish nominated. Yes. Um, Mini Driver for Goodwill Hunting, Gloria Stewart for Titanic, and Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights. Choose I think... carefully, Christopher, or else you're going to make me mad. Ooh, we're about to get mad. I mean, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I love her too, but Gloria Stewart oh, is God. Okay. easy to knock out. Yeah, of course. No, that's Did you not... think I was about to say Kim Basinger? I thought you were going to say Mini Driver. Oh, no, no, no. I mean... She was maligned. She was the maligned nomination that year. That was Minnie Driver was the one who everybody was like, does she really deserve to be here? Or is she just riding the Goodwill hunting coattails? No. She's great. First of all, Minnie Driver is fantastic. And she has like some really like knockout scenes in that movie, especially when she like is it a breakup scene or something? Everything when that relationship goes sour, I think yeah. she's great. The and scene where it's not the, a great role. The scene where Matt Damon is shirtless and looking as good as he's ever looked his, his entire career. Yes, that scene. She's so so good in that scene. It's honestly no Gloria Stewart, of course. Like that's that was a that was an emotional nomination. That was a we love Titanic so much and oh my god, the old lady is like so cute and right. And she had a like a you know it was one of those like once in a lifetime comebacks that we like so rarely see these and that's what they were kind of Do you remember when she rewarding. co-won the SAG award with Kim Basinger that year? Jesus Christ. She like people like she probably finished second. She almost certainly finished second that year. Probably. Ahead of Julianne Moore in Boogie Nights. Giving like a top 3 Julianne Moore performance, Jesus. Um I also maybe am coming around more and more to the idea that like maybe Kim Basinger shouldn't have been nominated. Oh, I'm fully there. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not one of those people that absolutely loves LA Confidential. I think that performance is mystifying that it has an Oscar to me. I think she is um, used incredibly well in that movie, and I don't mean to denigrate her by saying she's used well. I think she does well right. for what that character is. I don't think that character calls upon her to do a whole lot of acting. And when it does, I don't think she's good. Um, But I still, I mean, like, I otherwise like Kim Basinger. Um, yeah, except in Eight Mile, in which she is legitimately terrible. The thing about the Lady Chablis being in here is like that would be a really great lineup to, even if you knocked out Kim Basinger instead and kept Gloria Stewart. The Lady Chablis is so wonderful in this and so funny and like people really don't value how a performer can make something just flat out watchable. Like where you're not thinking about the functions of the story and you're not, you know, uh, even like wondering what happens next. You just live in the moment with what this performer is giving you. And I don't think that that's, I don't even know if that's a skill. It's just like this God given thing Yeah, that you have or you don't, but like, you're so grateful as an audience member to have that time. Like, yeah, just like basking in a performer and 
I don't know. The thing about the timing of it, like, I, I mean, probably if this was a better reviewed movie, you could see people rallying behind a performance like this today, but it, it's just so, like, disheartening and ugly about our history that, like, she was nominated for a Critics Prize and they misgendered her. Yeah, I was about to bring that up for the. Uh... You can look it up on you can look it up on IMDb and it's especially maddening because if you go into, they have like a disproportionate number for breakthrough female and disproportionate for like yeah. breakthrough male. Which sometimes and they put her in male. Yeah, sometimes I sort of I take that with a grain of salt because sometimes I feel like it's IMDb is not getting. Com- all of the complete information, information especially for dated stuff and yes. like far more nebulous but yeah um, this was the online film and television association which nominated lady shibley as best breakthrough performance male which like it's it's a sign of the times it's not i mean i don't know i i, I look back at like you know shades of you know what shades of gray may or may not have existed back in 1997 for both lady chablis herself and you know the culture obviously you look back at like jay davidson was nominated in 1992 as supporting actor in a way that like fully spoils the end of uh the crying game which they were taking great pains to not spoil um i think the other thing that's upsetting about that too is that Granted, okay, this movie is 20 years old. It's not going to be... It's not going to reflect how people are presented today. But I do think it is surprisingly affirming of her and her identity. The movie? Um, yeah. For a movie of of this time era. Like, especially because it's coming from Clint Eastwood. I wonder, though... You know, I... I was like... It feels like she it has an authorial voice on how she's presented. So maybe that helps... But, I was just um, about to say, I want, I think it's harder to fuck with that character when the real person is playing that character. I think you can't sell out your character, Lady Shibley, when you've got the performer is Lady Shibley. And I think there are... It's, it's tough to call this movie progressive in any way. No. But you're right. But it's like, I was... I mean... There are a lot again, of areas... Because I was like, I don't... I didn't know the Lady Chablis before watching this, but I'm like, it's interesting that this movie has faded away so much that it's not even a part of conversations for queer representation in movies. Because I have to say, for movies of the era, I, I was surprised. I was positively surprised. There are ways um, in which this movie gets an opportunity to sell out both Lady Chablis and Jim Williams, and they and it doesn't. It doesn't you know, put a halo on any of them. But it doesn't ever look at them luridly, and it doesn't um, sort of... For as much as I I do feel like the movie looks through a glass at the events of what's going on through the Kelso character, I don't think it offers a whole ton of judgment of either one of those characters. No. Which I think is, I mean, again, and it's... Clint Eastwood, who I'm not will, I'm not eager to give the benefit of the doubt to. It's it's almost more shocking because they don't overtly. Again, it's of its time period, so it's not perfect. But it's I I was like I was like bracing for it. I was like, it's gonna happen. Something really is gonna piss me off. Yeah, and it, that like horrible moment doesn't quite happen. And it sort of and then it frees us to then judge the movie on its own merits without having to feel defensive about things or having to feel like we are, we have to sort of get out of the way some of the politics of it before we talk about the movie. We can just talk about the movie. Unfortunately, that means talking about ways in which the movie falls short, but I don't know. Justice is justice. Right. So yeah, I'm glad I saw this movie again. I had seen it a while before. It is a long movie. It is not a brief movie. But for a movie that I think ultimately, if I'm doing good or bad, thumbs up or thumbs down, I'm probably calling it bad. But I, it's something that I'm very glad I watched. And I think if you haven't seen it, I, I would say seek it out because it's worth watching. It shouldn't be. I don't. I, this is not a movie that I feel like should be fully forgotten. If it only- has so much fascinating. It's very fascinating. Suddenly, you know, like because of the Kevin Spacey queer angle, um, you know, it, 
it's like suddenly a rush of context for this movie. Sure. But I think even independent of that, I think it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating failure. And I talk about that, you know, those kinds of movies a lot, but I feel like I would much rather watch a fascinating failure than anything that's, you know, dull or lifeless. And I think for as much as, for as many ways as this movie could have been more lively and more wild, it's you can't call it lifeless like there is some there is a beating heart in this movie somewhere even if it's only you know from the book at the center of it and not just for the lady chablis of all of the movies that we've talked about so far because this is our 11th episode this would probably be towards the top of the list of the movies i would watch again oh for sure absolutely it's like this and double jeopardy and mona lisa smile yeah yeah I've talked to a lot of people since that episode have gone up. Um, one of whom is my dad, who doesn't about like, Double Jeopardy. Who like no uh, Mona Lisa smile. Oh, <laughs> who like we had a fo- fully independent conversation where he's like, you know what movie I saw on TV the other day that I really liked? Because he just changed his cable package and they like he tried to quit Spectrum Cable and so they okay. like threw all the premium channels at him to get him to stay. So now he's got like. HBO out the wazoo. So he's been watching a whole bunch of movies and he mentioned, he's like, you know what I saw that I really liked? Mona Lisa Smile. I'm like, you know I'm doing this podcast, right? And he's like, oh, that's interesting. Um, But yeah, he really liked Mona Lisa Smile. And like uh, friends of mine have been talking to me about that. I'm like, you realize I'm doing this podcast, right? Like what in the world? (laughs) We could have talked about this weeks ago. Um, yeah. Hey, it was our first episode. We are, have been figuring things out. We're like, a if we're stronger trying to podcast do these movies now. that are forgotten. Yeah. You know, it's okay if the first one is not so forgotten. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I revisited Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I'm super glad we got you to watch it for the first time. And I'm glad oh, you yeah. were not spoiled for uh the text that you sent me <laughs> when you were watching this movie where you were just like, Lady Shabli definitely it was all caps, and I was like, you picked this movie just because of the Lady Chablis, and I am grateful. Oh, so good. All right. Uh, do you want to do an IMDb game to wrap it all up? Yeah, let's do the IMDb game. Do you want to go first, or do you want to go second? Uh, I'll go first. I'll explain it first. Um, IMDb game, very briefly, is sort of what it sounds like. We go on IMDb, we look up an actor, we see those four movies that they are known for, and we try to get the other one of us to guess them. The rules, if we are going by the rules, you get three strikes and then you're out. After two wrong answers, you get the years that the movies are from. I would try to like hew a little bit to the rules, if only because if there's some enterprising reader out there who wants to start tallying up successes and failures, um, we want to hew to it. But then I think at some point, if you can't get it from the clues... We're just going to keep giving each other clues because it's fun that way. And we would rather have that than dead air. So uh, I have one for you, Chris. You have one for me. I'm going to give to you first, okay? Okay. All right. So Clint Eastwood directed Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. He was an Oscar winner at that point for directing Unforgiven, which also won an Oscar for one Gene Hackman. So your choice, your task is to do the four known fours for Gene Hackman, who's only been in eight bajillion movies so don't worry i feel like this is the torture that you're returning to me even though he's far more famous that i uh, have given to you by choosing Jelko. I, oh, I was gonna say don't compare this to michael pena because there is nothing more difficult than trying to pick out the four movies that michael pena's made as like he's in every movie anyway all right uh okay uh royal tenenbaums that is one yep uh unforgiven yep um, I feel like Francis Ford Coppola is another one of those like ones that you shouldn't underestimate in this game. Can I say the conversation? You can. You'd be wrong. That's one strike. Oh, okay. Well, that's one strike. Yeah. Um, what's that movie he did with Owen Wilson that is like everyone's dad loves, like Behind Enemy Lines? Uh, that is, that is the name of it. Yeah, not. Yeah, that's wrong though. Um, Damn, so I got two wrong, got so two wrong. give me the years. So your years are 1971 and 1972. Oh, French Connection. French Connection is one of them. That's 71. And then 72, right after that is... This is why I hate years. Because um, I'm bad at the year guessing game. 
1972. Give me a genre? Um, I think the genre is a giveaway. I will say oh, that okay. it was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Academy Awards, winning wow. one competitive and one special achievement Oscar. Special achievement Oscar? Yeah. Is it science fiction? Not science fiction, but its Oscar was for visual effects. Its two biggest, uh, highest profile nominations were in supporting actress and original song. Original song is where it won. Is he in the Poseidon Adventure? He's the lead in the Poseidon Adventure. I've never seen the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Yeah, he's the lead guy. He and his... uh, snazzy 70s turtleneck are the lead in the poseidon adventure yeah you know what's really embarrassing i have never seen the poseidon adventure but i have seen poseidon Poseidon. (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect oh you know what there's got to be a morning after for remakes and yeah my chances in this game the morning after song winner shelly winters uh sadly did not win 1972 supporting actress I wonder if I could think of who did off the top of my head. Supporting actor that year was Joel Grey. Godfather didn't win any supporting acting awards. I'm looking it up now and I'm trying to guess it before I get there. 1972. (laughs) Eileen Heckert for Butterflies Are Free. Yeah, I wasn't going to get that one. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. That was not going to happen for me. All right. uh, Who do you got for me? All right, so I similarly have someone who has a lot of movies for you to guess. I feel like this one might be um, Payback Torturous. Oh, no. Um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil's Dead Hustler, Jude Law. Oh, you son of a bee. Um, All right. This one was like the low-hanging fruit. I was actually worried that we would have our first overlap of people. Oh, that's interesting. Jude Law... Ripley. Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. Okay. Cold Mountain? No. Okay. All right. Um, Jude Law. Oh, is it any of his uh, six asterisk 2004 movies? Um, There are two 2004 movies. Ooh. See, you're giving me hints before I need hints. Um, The rules people are going to be all over you for that. By the, ru- well, you, by the you rules, people, me I mean Katie Rich. <laughs> Shout out Katie Rich. <laughs> Yell at us, Katie. It's fine. Um, no, I was just sort of like wondering vaguely. Okay, so two 2004 movies. Because here's the thing about the six movies that Jude Law made in 2004. He made four movies in 2004, had a cameo in The Aviator, and then did voiceover on Lemony Snicket. And honestly, if you're complaining about Jude Law overload, The Aviator and Lemony Snicket are doing nothing to you so calm down so his other four movies closer yes all right closer um, that was one that i really didn't think you were gonna get oh actually i don't i'm in a very closer I'm mood these days i am like fully preparing like a closer like viewing party i am always in the a closer mood and i'm I guess I'm going to perpetually be angry if you're doing a closer viewing party that I can't attend. That's just fine. It's fine. Um, okay. All right. So there's one more 2004 movie. I want it to be Huckabee's. I think it's Alfie. Um, which one are you guessing? Alfie. You're wrong. Ah, is it Huckabee's? It's not Huckabee's either. Oh, it's the other um, goddamn one. It's this stupid is... Sky Captain. I like Sky Captain. Oh, God. Forgive me. All right. I like that stupid ass movie. Wait, so it's um, okay. It's Ripley. So, it's it's Ripley. It's closer. It's Sky Captain. This is so fucked up and weird. This one. Okay, so it's 2014. I am willing to bet that you have forgotten that he is even in this movie because he's barely in this movie. 2014. Um, I will say it's a filmmaker that you can always kind of rely on for this game to just predict their movies. Um, it was it a Burton? multiple Oscar winner. Did you say Birdman? Burton. Uh, Tim Burton. No, it is not. Is it Birdman? No. <laughs> he's not in that. No, he's not in Birdman. No. Um, Birdman. Um, <laughs> it is another... Um, if a lot of people refer to Tim Burton as quirky, this is, that is the same word that is applied oh, to this Oh, of course. Filmmaker. No, he's in uh, Grand Budapest. Yep, Grand Budapest Hotel. I feel like Wes Anderson is maybe not 
oversampled on the IMDb game, but Grand Budapest Hotel does show up in a lot of people's. Although so does Moonrise Kingdom. And we just saw that... I feel like Wes Anderson yeah, shows up a lot. I think you're right. Like, when I'm picking I think options right. for you. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> I needed a lot of hints, but I got that. So well done, everybody. Anything else Yay. we want to say about uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil before I shove us on out? I mean, as always, two tears in a bucket. Motherfuck it. Yeah. That's, that's everybody's new uh, motto for sure. That is our episode. So if you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can regularly find me at The Film Experience. I am a regular contributor there. I do a weekly column on soundtracks, and you can find me writing about other things. I'm also on Twitter at ChrisVFile. That's F-E-I-L. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, that is spelled R-E-I-D, and every day you can read me at Decider.com, covering film and television and everything that is on streaming. Um, We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez for his technical guidance. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review really helps us out with iTunes visibility and such. Don't leave us to be a phantom dog walked on Apple's leash forever. Um, Otherwise, thank you. (laughs) That is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Bye.